When the European Union was created and they were thinking about a currency union, somehow the idea of free couple mobility was taken for granted. Okay, now I know asking people who their dream dinner guests would be may feel a bit cheesy or overly hypothetical. But at the core of that question, you're simply asking someone who they'd love to talk to. And because most of us won't have the opportunity to sit down with a wide range of experts in their respective fields, be it an athlete, entrepreneur, actor, and pick their brains over a delicious meal, it is fun to think about. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan. And in today's episode of Women in Economics, the person I really want to talk to is economist Stephanie Schmidt-Grohe. Schmidt-Grohe was born and raised in Germany, but while studying economics, she realized that nearly all the economic textbooks were either written or published in the U.S., Because of this, she decided to pursue her PhD at the University of Chicago and has now been a professor at Columbia University for more than a decade. She brings a unique European and American perspective to much of her work and specializes in macroeconomics and fiscal and monetary policy in both open and closed economies. As someone who has interviewed plenty of experts and many economists, I've rarely found myself in a situation where I can rapid-fire ask any questions I have without some larger focus or angle, which is why I'm so excited about today's episode. Schmidt-Grohe, who we met last season when she participated in the special roundtable discussion, episode 8 if you'd like to listen back, is back today for a masterclass in economics. If you've ever asked yourself questions like, what do economists mean when they refer to optimal policies? Or what impact does raising inflation have on unemployment? Then don't go anywhere. Today, you get a seat at the dinner table. Let's start with an Econ 101 term, Keynesian economics, named after British economist John Maynard Keynes. It's a collection of theories and models trying to explain inefficiencies that may arise in a market economy. Your work has been influenced by what we call New Keynesian economics. What did New Keynesian change or do differently to warrant its own class within the field of economics? What makes macroeconomics interesting is that at the end of the day, you're trying to say something about policy. So it could be monetary policy, it could be fiscal policy, it could be some arrangement about international um, capital flows. So for a while, the main paradigm was, let's think about a frictionless economy where markets work perfectly, prices adjust freely. What the new Keynesian revolution brought to that was the idea that maybe markets by themselves don't adjust perfectly. And the thing that was isolated was the price mechanism, that prices were, at least in the short run, sticky or rigid and they couldn't adjust. This gives a role for the monetary policymaker to try to influence the development of the general price level so that the outcome is efficient or the economy is at full employment, even though the economy is experiencing shocks and ideally prices would adjust, but because of these price rigidities, they cannot adjust. So new Keynesianism is a model of the macroeconomy where we explicitly allow for this friction, namely normal price rigidity or nominal wage rigidity, and then think about what is the appropriate policy response when the economy experiences negative external shocks or negative disturbances. Let's travel to an alternate universe where I am the head of a central bank. 
Any form of negative shocks would truly be the last thing I would want to happen during my tenure. I know that you've written extensively about the nature of economic shocks. Can you explain what a shock actually means? We do observe that the level of output always fluctuates, right? And so we have this phenomenon of recessions and booms. The way economists try to rationalize these ups and downs is by something exogenous, meaning out of the control of the policymaker or out of the control of economic agents changing. There's the coronavirus outbreak. This is something unforecastable, a surprise. And what does it mean? Say, car assemblers in Korea, they were getting one piece to assemble the car and they don't get it because in Wuhan, the factory is closed. So this is like a negative shock. There's much less travel. A lot of things are postponed for a while. That's an easy to understand example of a shock. Another one would be oil prices. Sometimes oil prices vary because of supply conditions in the oil market, and that's an exogenous shock. Let's think about how economists describe the 2008 crisis. So in that case, the shock would be not something that actually originated inside Italy or inside Spain or inside Portugal, but there was something going wrong in the financial market in the United States. Something happened there, and so there was a financial crisis. And after that happened, it was very difficult to get credit for everyone. Independent of what happened in your country, it was much harder to get credit. And all the periphery of Europe had been borrowing heavily. So suddenly, if credit becomes very hard to get, there's a big contraction. So that was the financial shock of 2008. We all remember the severeness of the last financial crisis. And we are, of course, still trying to understand the current COVID-19 crisis, its economic toll, and what the legacy of the 2020 and 2021 shutdowns may be. But back to me as the head of a central bank, what can I do during economic shock such as this to try and stabilize the economy? Stabilization policy has a number of different instruments. So if we think about monetary policy, for a long time, the way we thought about it is we just use the short-run normal interest rate to stabilize the economy. So for example, If the economy seemed like it was growing too fast and was overheating, then the central bank of the country would raise the normal interest rate to put the brakes on the economy. Or if it looked like because of negative exogenous shocks, the economy had a lot of slack, was a bit slow, then the idea is that the central bank uses the monetary stimulus, they lower the normal interest rate in an effort to stimulate the economy. So that's how say, traditional monetary policy works as a stabilization instrument. If you think about fiscal policy, there the instrument is either changes in taxes or changes in government spending. So, for example, when a recession comes, to stimulate demand by agents so that they consume and go out and shop is to give them some transfers. What kind of transfer? More unemployment insurance, maybe more in the U.S. health insurance, Medicaid payments, so transfers of that type. Got it. You've also written about capital controls as it relates to an open economy like that of the European Union. Could capital controls have helped lessen the shock of the financial crisis? The European Union was created and they were thinking about a currency union. Somehow the idea of free capital mobility was taken for granted that it should be true that capital can flow freely across the union. 
what happened in Europe is if you look at what happened during the boom phase from 2000 to 2008, the southern periphery and some of the northern periphery countries borrowed a lot, a lot, a lot from abroad. So there's more demand domestically and this demand is consumption demand, investment demand, say building vacation homes in Spain. So what happens then as a, as a consequence of this is that wages and prices rose quite a bit. Wages grew by 80% over that period, even though there was no increase in productivity. It was just because demand was so strong, because all this capital was coming in. And then you enter the crisis with a very high level of wages, and you cannot push it down. If you now take a step back and said in 2007, if I had known that letting all this capital come in will push up wages, and then I'm stuck with a high wage because wages are downwardly rigid, I cannot lower them, you would have said, okay, I'm going to do the following. I do not allow the capital to come in during the good time completely unfettered. I put some limits on that. Maybe then wages in Spain would have risen not by 80%, just by 40%. And then when we start the crisis, the degree by which real wages are too high to clear the market would have been lower. So that is what we show in that paper, that if you are a country that gives up one of the stabilization instruments, namely the normal exchange rate, then you have an incentive to regulate capital inflows. And you have an incentive to regulate it, not like a fixed amount. So it would be taxing capital inflows in good times and subsidizing capital inflows in bad times. And that is called a macroprudential or pro-cyclical macroprudential policy. What about the correlation between rising inflation rates and unemployment? Naturally, increasing wages by 40% rather than 80% seems like a smart business decision. But there is also a business argument for paying slightly higher wages to help counter inflation, no? You cannot cut somebody's normal wage. So you pay him, I don't know, 25 euro per hour. And if everyone understands that now inflation is going to go back to 2%, you know that inflation is going to eat away at the purchasing power of that wage, right? So... 25 euros this year is not going to have the same purchasing power as 25 euros next year if you have a 2% inflation or a 0% inflation. So the firm knows that even though it has a bunch of workers whose wage is a little bit high, they know inflation is going to eat away at their wage. And so sooner or later, those labor costs are going to become smaller. And so it pays for the firm to keep these guys on. And so labor costs fall and they can have a higher production and higher output and they can operate at a larger scale. Let's talk about the lifeblood of the global economy, international trade. There aren't many points most economists agree upon, but the idea that trade among countries has made the world better off is one of them. In your work, you've looked at international trade and trading prices, often referred to as terms of trade, can you explain the importance of trading prices specifically for smaller economies? Okay, so a very easy example to give is suppose you're Brazil and one of your main exports is coffee. And suppose one of your main imports is consumer electronics. Is the relative price between coffee and consumer electronics something that is influenced by what happens inside Brazil? Or is it something that is determined by what happens in the world market? Most countries in the world are small, and small in economics has a very precise meaning, namely that they take the relative price between various goods as given. 
I think the easiest to understand would be the relative price of commodities, the relative price of coffee relative to soybean, the relative price of coffee relative to copper or minerals. So, so these relative prices, they feed into the terms of trade. The terms of trade is a more aggregate thing. All the prices you export relative to all the prices of goods that you import. So it's the relative price of exported goods to imported goods. That's the meaning of terms of trade. And for small economies, this rate of price is somehow determined in world markets. And no matter what happens in the small country, they can't do anything about it. And these fluctuations play a big role for these countries or oil exporters. What happens to the oil price, to some extent, maybe you think they can influence it. But many oil exporters actually also are price takers in the oil market. For the vast majority of countries that are not the big, big players in world markets, this type of terms of trade variations, namely variations in the relative price of exports to imports, is a major source of shocks. We've already discussed the U.S. dollar's dominance on this podcast and why exporters often choose to trade globally in U.S. dollars instead of their own currency. As we know, monetary policy can be a complex landscape to navigate, which is why some countries opt for currency pegs. Can you give a real-world or historical example of what a currency peg looks like? A currency peg, in principle, means that, say, let's take Ecuador. Instead of having their own currency, they say, um, yes, maybe we have our own currency, but the exchange rate between our currency and the U.S. dollars is fixed. Or Argentina had something like this during the 1990s. One Argentine peso was one Argentine dollar. That is a currency peg. But a little bit more broadly, you can also think about the European Union as a currency peg, because from the point of view, say, of Cyprus, they are on the euro. And of course, all the European countries share the euro, but it's not that the Central Bank of Cyprus can change the exchange rate between its currency, which is the euro, and say the US dollar freely. They are basically part of a currency union. And so the exchange rate is no longer one of their tools that they can use to um, conduct stabilization policy. The typical central bank uses the nomics interest rate as a policy tool. Equivalently, it could also use the exchange rate as the stabilization instrument. So if you join a currency pack, that instrument is no longer in your toolkit. You lose it. Keeping with the example of the euro, what are the benefits of a currency peg? The European Union is a very good example. They adopted a currency peg. And so the issue is, are the benefits mainly from an economic point of view or are the benefits mainly political? And of course, there are some economic benefits, but there are also some economic costs, as we have now experienced during the last 10 years when there was the Great Recession. So clearly one economic benefit is that you have more stable exchange rates across the countries that might facilitate trade. Um, that's one idea. Another idea is that when you're a member of a fixed exchange rate group of a currency union, that actually helps some countries that have commitment problems of the type that they take on a lot of debt, say Greece, and then they cannot commit to repay. Being member of this economic and this currency union allows them to have a little bit more commitment to repay. And in general, if you are somebody who wants to borrow and you are a reliable partner that you repay, that's much better for your economy than if you have these problems that you initially promised to repay, but then you can't commit to repay. 
the, the partner in that arrangement who suffers is actually the person who has the problem of committing to repay because whoever lends to them understands that and so you don't get much money. So I think these are the two economic benefits. A big cost is what we saw in, in, in 2008 during the global financial crisis. We saw that in the periphery of Europe, when the crisis hit in 2008 and 2009, unemployment went up enormously to almost 30% in some countries. If they weren't on a fixed exchange rate, what would Spain have done or Cyprus or Greece or Italy? Maybe they would have devalued their currency and therefore helped the economy to recover fast. That tool was taken away from them. And so this inability to recover when you get a massive external shock, that's the cost of a currency pact. Okay, final question. Is there even such a thing as optimal policies to economists? Nobody's perfect after all. Economists have this notion that there's a certain level of output that is optimal in the sense that any inefficiencies are addressed by policies so that is the optimal level of production in which none of the frictions stand in the way. So, so for example, if you have a firm that has a lot of capacity to produce, but demand is weak and the firm somehow cannot lower the price so that supply meets demand and you have all this unused capacity, that would be suboptimal. So would be optimal to engineer something so that the firms are operating at full capacity. So in that sense, optimal policy would be to do something so that maybe to create a little bit of inflation to bring prices down, the effective cost down so they can sell. Optimal doesn't mean that output is totally stable all the time, but optimal means that given that there are some exogenous shocks and output moves, that it actually moves as if it didn't have these frictions like wage frictions, price frictions, some other type of financial frictions. That's what what optimal means. Thank you so much to Schmidt Crohey for her generous answers and comprehensive breakdowns. Join us next week to explore why it's so hard to tax big tech. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.